0: Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. So that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So, if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Raj Sisodia. Raj is a founding member of the Conscious Capital Movement, and he's an award-winning author. He's published more than ten books and over hundred academic articles. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal the New York Times, Fortune, Financial Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe, CNBC, and many other media outlets. But most importantly, he's appeared here on the School for Good Living. I love talking with Raj. I love reading his book, Conscious Capitalism, is where I started with him. It's a book he wrote with John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. This book really opened my eyes to business as a force and a source for good, a source of healing instead of stress. Uh, Raj is a very deep thinker and he brings an incredible uh, life experience and research and education. Originally born and raised in India till he was seven. He now lives in Boston, where he is a professor at Babson College. I learned a lot about American history in this conversation, and I think you will too. I think you'll enjoy it, and I think you'll also learn some things that you can apply in your own work, especially if you own or run a business. I hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Raj Sisodia. So Raj, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast.
1: Thank you, Brian.
0: Very happy to be with you today. So Raj, I want to start with a question. What's life about? To me, life is about,
1: first of all, figuring out who you are, you know, gaining that self-knowledge, your, your essence. And what is it that makes you really come alive? So, who you are, so, you know, knowing yourself, then learning to love yourself, then being yourself and then expressing yourself. I would say are some of those key elements, you know, in terms of getting to a place of fulfillment and contribution. I think you need both of those things because you can have contribution without fulfillment if you're not really being true to your essence, but you have some skill or some capacity. And uh, if you're not, uh, you know, you can have the opposite as well. Uh, you can be fulfilled without actually contributing if you're not expressing your gifts into the world. Right. So I do think that it's, a, it's to me, those those are four of the steps that I would. Uh, and, you know, it's taken me a long time actually to get to those. <laughs> how have you gone about it
0: and and how can others go about it?
1: Well, you know, for me, uh, I've had, uh, this is a year of some deep exploration You know, I'm writing a book about healing, which I'm sure we'll get to a book about how business can be a source and a force for healing in the world. And as I was working on that book, I realized that I need to understand healing at a deeper level, not just at an intellectual level. And I also need to uh, figure out uh, what kind of healing I need and how I can achieve that. So do some inner work and figuring out. You know, you cannot write about what you don't know, and you cannot teach. You know, what you don't practice. So this year, I've taken some time and I've had a number of experiences, uh, which are all uh, aimed at that: understanding myself, understanding my life, having it make sense, figuring out, connecting those dots, uh, which you can do looking back. Uh, and I think it's really helped me to take that time and uh, and go through those experiences because I'm now able to come at this question of healing in a in a more uh, in a
0: deeper and richer and better informed way. You think you're writing the book? I mean, I know it's this kind of truism that we teach what we need to learn. Yes. But if you if you had to say, do you think that you've taken on this book, the healing organization, because it's something you need to learn or are you learning these things for some other reason
1: well it's 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 usually a combination of both you know my friend nilima who i wrote the book called shakti leadership with often uses the phrase that which is deeply personal is also completely universal and what i've learned over the years now is to trust my instincts and to also listen to my body so that when i have a thought or an idea and I have a physical reaction to that, not just a mental reaction, but literally I can feel it in my body. Then I know that it's telling me something, that that is something that I need to explore and I need to go down that path. And every time I've done that, or most of the times, if I think back to all the significant things that have happened in my life and uh, things various areas in which I've been able to make a difference, it has been, as a result of listening to that inner voice and listening to my body. Uh, and So that happened with this word healing as well. You know, I had been using it uh, in a different sense. I had been using healing as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. And you know, it stands for heroic, uh, evolving, aligning, loving, inspiring, natural and galvanizing. So uh, these are the elements I think that constitute a great purpose for a great company and I suppose you could apply them at your individual level as well but I was thinking more about businesses. But then as I thought about it I said you know we we live in a world that has extraordinary amounts of suffering still. I mean we have alleviated certain forms of suffering certainly compared to our history but uh, there's still an awful lot of suffering a lot of psychic suffering I would say less physical violence, but more psychic and a lot of self-imposed, but also uh, things that we are imposing or doing to each other. So there's still a lot of suffering. And to me, it occurred to me that every great purpose actually needs to be about healing. It needs to be about alleviating suffering and bringing joy in some way. And then as I thought about that deeper, I said, you know, fundamentally business is meant to do that. Business is meant to meet our needs. And it's meant to be an avenue of service, an instrument of serving each other. To me, that's the right energy with which we need to think about business. In a free market system, individuals and companies are given the opportunity, but also then the responsibility of meeting most of the needs of most of our citizens. Government only fills in whatever cannot be done by business, right? And nonprofits might do some other things, but businesses have this wide canvas. And if you approach that from the perspective of figuring out what are people's real needs and meeting them in an authentic and sincere way and coming from a place of wanting to serve, then you're going to be healing people through your business. And of course, as you know, when you heal others, you heal yourself. And I think the problem is that we have made business purely about self-interest. And we have said, it's a way of achieving your, you know, you pursuing your self-interest, everybody pursuing their self-interest. And as part of that, you figure out what other people need and make it and sell it to them. But if it comes from an energy purely of what what does it do for me, then you end up using and ultimately exploiting, I would say, other people in pursuit of your self-interest. And that then evolves or devolves into selfishness and ultimately greed and exploitation follow. So I think ultimately my conclusion, and the book isn't done yet, but is that business is fundamentally about healing. What seems like a radical thought at the beginning, you know, that uh, businesses can heal, or you can have healing organization and this is not healing businesses, but business as healing, turns out to me at the end to say that that is in fact what business is about, fundamentally.
0: You know, your book, Conscious Capitalism, really changed my mind about a lot of things. And In fact, I won't say it changed my mind so much as it I feel like it expanded my thinking. Um, and one of those being what you're talking about now, where, you know, previously business and even still has been taught, you know, the purpose of business, maximize shareholder value. And this, this notion that we've been teaching in business schools, you know, for decades. And what you're saying now about business can or ought to be about healing. And in fact, in your Ted talk, you, you made the statement about healing is the meta purpose of our age. Will you say a little bit more about what you mean by healing is the meta purpose of our age?
1: Yeah. So I think we're living in a time of, uh, uh, tremendous contradictions in one way, right? So we have this 200 year history now of rapid progress, um, uh, With capitalism and free markets becoming more and more prevalent around the world, uh, we have had a dramatic rise in per capita incomes, uh, about 1500% on average. In the world, after being flat for millennia, we have had a tremendous decrease in extreme poverty, a great increase in uh, literacy rates, uh, life expectancy, you know, many indicators of our well-being have gone up. So there's been a lot of progress that we've achieved. At the same time, however, we have done that in a way that has actually inflicted a lot of harm on the planet, on other living beings, um, and even on human beings, I would say, on, on human beings as well as other forms of life. So we've seen all the data in terms of what we've done to the forests and the arable land and the uh, large mammals are down 90% and large fish are down 95%. And um, you know, we know that the toxic burden uh, out there in the environment is growing on our, on our bodies as well. The incidence of cancer is skyrocketing uh, and other diseases. Uh, we know we've done significant damage to the ecosystem. Uh, hopefully not of, all of it is irreversible, but some of it seems to be. So I think we have we have uh, we have had a lot of suffering that has gone on. At the same time, you know, I would say that the cost of doing business and the human cost of doing business, and even beyond that, actually, the cost of doing business in all in terms of its impact on all forms of life has been huge. Right, the loss of species, right, the loss of habitats, even the fact that uh, as bus- as 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 our food. Uh, production has become more industrialized and and it's become a big business in itself. The amount of suffering of animals, 10 billion animals a year in the US, not including seafood, are killed for human consumption and most of them are, are really tortured in a way before they become part of the food system, right? So there's an extraordinary amount of suffering And if you want to get mystical about it, I mean, there's energy that connects all of us. And if you have much suffering being uh, experienced, it has to impact, you know, sort of our, our macro system in which we live here. But then if you just think about humans as well, I think there's been a tremendous increase in stress, um, uh, anxiety, depression, suicides, all of these things are up significantly in the last few decades. And if you look at statistics specific to the world of business, you know that heart attacks are 20% higher on Monday morning. That uh, most people feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them as a human being. I mean, as high as 88% of people. Uh, Employee engagement worldwide is only about 15%. You know, so there's a lot of silent suffering and people are poorly paid. Even in this booming economy in the richest country in the world, with very low unemployment and the stock market at record highs. The fact is the vast majority of people are struggling. 60% of our American households have a negative net worth. They are technically insolvent. Their debts exceed their uh, assets and they're going further into debt every year at a time of historically low interest rates. So when those normalize, you know, many more people will be in deep distress. And 50% of Americans have less than $400 in the bank and would not be able to come up with $2,000 within 30 days if they needed it. So a small problem becomes a catastrophe in people's lives. So there's, that is kind of the context within which we're talking. So there's a tremendous need for healing because there's a lot of suffering. And we also know that we have uh, a a tremendous divide uh, within society, right? The left and the right, for example families are split apart over those issues so we need to heal ourselves with all the suffering the depression anxiety etc we need to heal our families uh, we need to heal our companies we need to heal our society we certainly need to heal our ecosystem our environment you know and so there's there's just a, a need for healing at every possible level and to the beautiful thing is what gives people the most meaning in their lives is to alleviate the suffering of others. right? So what what is an enormous problem is also an enormous opportunity for us to gain meaning and purpose in our lives. As Lynn Twister said, we're living in the most, um, how does she phrase it? Uh, we're living at a t- time when, more. Well, huh, I need to remember the exact quote that she has, but it is a time when more of us have a greater opportunity to achieve meaning and purpose than ever before because there's so much potential and so much opportunity. Yeah, those of us alive today can live the, lead the most meaningful lives human beings have ever led on this planet because there's so much we can do to alleviate suffering and to bring more joy. So I think that's, that's what we have to look at. We need to heal the past. We need to heal the present and we need to heal the future and we cannot move into the future until we heal the past. And this is where, for example, you look at what happened in South Africa after the end of apartheid and the truth and reconciliation process enabled that society to move forward without a huge amount of revenge-fueled violence, which would have happened with all the people who had all the experience that they had had for so long. But they were able to move past that because there was truth and reconciliation. I think we need versions of that uh, all over the world, including here in the U.S. There are many things in our history that we need to move past, but those wounds are still open, and we haven't acknowledged and and healed many of those things from the past, and they keep coming up, you know, as we are experiencing now.
0: Yeah, when when you mentioned in your talk that there are as many uh, as many Americans with some sort of a criminal element in their background as there are people with college degrees yes you know and how our mass incarceration system is really not serving us that was that was a huge eye-opener for me and as you talk about healing the past healing the present especially from some of the institutionalized racism that exists you know what happened with slavery what happened with the native americans i mean as a practical matter how do you think that we can go about that. I mean, 330 million citizens roughly. How how do you have a national conversation that leads to healing? What does that look like?
1: Well, that's a deeper question that uh, I'm not sure that I have a great answer for, you know. Um, I do think acknowledging, you know, even if you, you can't do anything, the thing is you can't change the past, nor can you forget it, right? But you have to come to terms with it. And you have to acknowledge it and you have to apologize if, if need be. Now, this is not your fault, right? You say, I didn't enslave anybody. I didn't kill any Native Americans, but there's a collective consciousness. And then maybe there's some kind of collective um, response to that as well. I think simply acknowledging, you know, when people feel seen and heard, and therefore validated. I think that that's very significant, you know, as opposed to downplaying and denying and uh, uh, and minimizing things. So maybe it's, you know, we need just person-to-person conversations out there, people simply expressing that. But again, I, I think that's a larger national conversation we need to figure out how to do. Uh, I do think it's, it's a needed, it's a greatly needed thing because there's a lot of, you know, anger and all these things come from a place of deep hurt and and fear and and suffering. So all the outward manifestations are coming from some some vulnerability and some uh, unprocessed uh, feelings, maybe even some guilt, maybe some shame, you know, I mean, there are some things, in some ways we need to have some more healthy shame in this country, you know, because if you don't have healthy shame, then you're basically shameless. And the shame I tweeted after this thought came to me is that shame is like salt. You know, a little bit goes a long way, but is essential for your health. Right. So we need to have some healthy shame of things that have happened on our watch, or have happened, you know, in the past, uh, you know, in our lineage or whatever it might be. I think there's some of that that needs to be cleaned up. But that's that's a. I'm hoping that our book and others like it will trigger these kinds of conversations. Because we need to help, we need to heal ourselves and we need to heal each other and help heal each other. And as the Dalai Lama said, you know, our purpose in life is to help others. And if we cannot help them, at least don't hurt them. And I think we've been doing a lot of hurting. And not, not deliberately, but blindly, unconsciously. You know, we're, we're, we're inflicting a lot of suffering that's, you know, there is a form of suffering that is noble. As Viktor Frankl wrote so beautifully, you know, we can find meaning in our suffering and people have taken terrible tragedies, you know, losing a child to something and, and they, then they launch a foundation to address that very thing and prevent other people from losing their children or, or like you know similar stories are, are so many. So there's a way to find meaning in certain kinds of suffering, but a lot of the suffering that we have, in the world of business is unnecessary and does not serve any higher purpose. It is simply coming from ignorance and, um, uh, and and as I said, a kind of blindness.
0: Yeah. And as long as our, our method of doing business is oriented around maximizing profit at all costs and not contemplating the environmental costs, the human costs, you know, these things um, I think that's likely to continue one thing I really would love to get your perspective about is what's the alternative and how do you measure it? Because profit, I mean, ex- you know, revenues minus expenses and bam, you know, with a few other little tweaks, you've got it. It's it's quantifiable. It's a s- certain scorecard. But I mean, when I read a book like your book, Everybody Matters, you know, and, and I read about how incredible, you know, Bob Chapman's journey has been. In treating people like family and and really dispensing with a lot of the kind of the institutional rules for business, it gives me hope that it's you know I mean I see that it's possible. But how does an any organization how can they move away from looking at the bottom line as the sole metric and what else do they measure instead and how do they measure it?
1: Yeah, so we need uh, you know we need measures of stakeholder well being. Right? It's not hard to know if your employees are happy and happy not just 9 to 5, Monday to Friday but are they flourishing in their lives. That's what to me Bob Chapman's, uh, the big insight that drew me into that story and uh, convinced me that I should w- work on that book with him was uh, the recognition that the way we lead impacts the way people live, that our leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to us. So it's not just 9 to 5, Monday to Friday and what happens to their productivity and their level of engagement, but it's really how they are able to show up at home with their children and in their marriages and in their communities, right? So all of those are the consequences of how we operate and we can quantify some of that. Certainly we can quantify the level of happiness, engagement, fulfillment, satisfaction. You know, we can also, like some companies that we're writing about in this book, they are consciously making the children of their employees as stakeholders. They're saying not only the employees are stakeholders, but their children are stakeholders. So, for example, if you're a consulting company and you make it the norm that you have to be gone Monday to Thursday every single week, because your clients are out of town, then you're, you are putting a price, you know, you are causing a, a, a certain dynamic in that family where the children will not see their parents. right? And is that too high a price to pay? And is it a necessary price to pay? So this consulting company JBN has in Atlanta has made a policy that all their clients will be local, right? And therefore you don't have to travel. And if, if you find a lot of clients in another city, we'll open an office there and hire people there. They live there, they serve those clients, right? So by that, by doing that, they're able to remove that huge cost, which is unseen and and unaccounted for, right? So we can look at all of our stakeholders in that broader way and say, are we truly you know, we, you know, business talks about, are we capturing market share? You know, that's how they look at success in marketing, right? No, are we truly serving our customers at a deep level and are we making their lives better, right? No. And these things are not complicated are not hard to measure, right? What kind of an, uh, an impact are we having on the, on the environment? You know, one of the stories in our book is a company in Costa Rica, uh, called FIFCO, which is in the beer and soft drinks business primarily. And over about a 10, 12 year period, they went from being carbon negative and uh, water negative to becoming neutral. And now they're positive. They're actually carbon positive and water positive, right? And that's just, that's the environmental state. You know, their employees, their customers, I mean, it all goes together, all of them. So you can, if you have a commitment to making those things better, you can actually track the well-being of all of your stakeholders. And you will also then see how all of that, works together right that the well-being of customer employees first of all it should be inherently important to you like Bob Chapman would tell you even if that doesn't mean anything for productivity, I still want to do it right but we know that employees who are less worried and happier and you know are not uh, on the edge of, of disaster and ruin you know obviously are going to be capable of so much more. Right? And they can joyfully bring so much more to work. So, you know, these are some of the happy ironies of uh, of of being in business. Is that you don't have to trade off human well-being and planetary flourishing with profit. That comes from a mindset that is, you know, it's, it's a very narrow trade-off oriented mindset. It goes back to even Adam Smith. You know, the original happy irony of of uh, of capitalism is is that freedom leads to prosperity. Right, the more freedom you have, the more prosperity there is. Now, that's a beautiful thing, right? <laughs> because uh, you know, most people would would not necessarily assume that. It's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, you can, you know. So in business, we have all these wonderful win-win possibilities. But it's only our mindset and simplistic thinking that keeps us from that. You know, you mentioned profit equals revenue minus cost, right? I mean, that's a simple thing. Uh, you know, even a f- second or third grader can understand that. Uh, But if you just then therefore say that our purpose is to just maximize profit then that means you minimize your your cost and maximize your revenue. Sell as much, charge as much whether people need it or not and minimize your cost. How do you do that? You pay your people as little as possible, you uh, squeeze your suppliers, you externalize burdens onto society. You know half your people are on food stamps or whatever else and you're pushing other you know, costs into the future. You know, the environment, etc. Right. So you've achieved that purpose, but that's worth nothing. That's that's you're a parasite. That's not a business. Right. So there's another simplicity, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said. I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, which is what that represents. Right. That's simplistic. But he said I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, which is business is about promoting flourishing of all life. That's pretty simple, right? Now there's a complex living system that one has to understand just like the human body, right? The organizations consist of organisms. So we have to understand how it's a living complex evolving system and how we can be a steward of that system for the flourishing of the whole. And when we do that, things become pretty simple in these companies, you know. They are self-organizing, self-managing, self-motivating. You don't need a lot of managers telling people what to do. You don't need, you know, supervisors and bosses <laughs> bossing people around. You know, um, people are inherently if they if they are in the right place. In other words, if their personal passion and purpose aligns with what this business is all about, which should be a starting point. That's how you hire people. You know, then they will do so much more than any manager can get them to do. You know, so there's a there's another kind of simplicity, but that comes after you've gone through the sort of mental shift of understanding you know how how that that system actually functions which means you need systems intelligence along
0: with spiritual and emotional intelligence yeah you know talk to me a little bit about your book shakti leadership and why it's important to to have feminine values more fully infused into into our culture into our business what does that mean
1: Yes, uh, I think this is one of the great uh, lacks, if that's a word, things that are lacking in the world. Uh, And it's lacking in the world of politics. It's lacking in the world of business. That for millennia, every societal institution has been run by men on a limited set of masculine values. Now we have some mature masculine values, which are strength, courage, resilience, focus, discipline, Right, but then we have hypermasculine values: so domination, aggression, competition, winning, results at all costs—sort of a zero-sum view of the world. Right, winners and losers. And so, if you look at human societies, for the most part, we've existed in these patriarchal systems, you know, with the dominage, dominance of masculine energy. There have been some pockets of matriarchal systems as well, but it's not about one or the other. So ultimately, what we're realizing is that. All of us have masculine and feminine within us. We're all born with that as a human being, we have a gender, right? But we also have masculine energy and feminine energy within us. We all come from others. So, so so this yin and yang, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman. Every woman has an inner man, but that inner woman, that feminine side has been suppressed and repressed. Certainly in men, but also in women in many ways. So women have been suppressed, and therefore that energy gets suppressed. But also the women who kind of make it in out there into this male-dominated world, they are, need to kind of leave their femininity behind. And also we had leaders like Margaret Thatcher and, and Golda Meir who were called iron ladies, right? So the only ladies who made it in the world of politics were iron ladies. In India we had Indira Gandhi as our prime minister in the 70s and into the 80s. but She was known as the only man in her cabinet, even though she was the only woman because she had to set aside, because all of those things were seen as weakness, that they're not associated with leadership and getting things done. Now we're starting to realize what a toxic and limiting belief that was. And a lot of research now is showing that the criteria for good leadership today is much more dominated by so called feminine values of compassion, caring, empathy, you know, vulnerability, nurturing, etc., inclusiveness. So that's starting to be recognized now. And of course, we have many more women that are coming into uh, positions of leadership. Women outnumber men in college dramatically. I mean, 60 to 40 now, roughly, in all industrialized nations. And they do better, they get better grades, etc. So white collar professions are being statistically now dominated by women. And with that will come a change in the culture. But I like to broaden the lens even more than that. There's some demographic things that are happening, as I just said, with education and other things. So that's becoming the great equalizer in society when more things require higher education. Women have an inherent advantage there today. And this is true in law school and medical school and just about everything. It used to be only teaching and nursing. Today, women outnumber men everywhere.
0: Why is it that that, that women have the advantage here? Tell me about that.
1: That's a good question. Why are women doing better in college? I don't know that I've looked at that that deeply, you know, but there's something there that women are uh, seemingly very well equipped in that sense for this modern world, Uh, not across every discipline, but in most on average, as I said, 60 to 40. But if I, if I then look back and something I just learned very recently, actually, is uh, is that the U.S. system of government? So, if you think about it, the U.S. was a sort of a a critical piece, you know, in in our modern history of the world, because in 1776, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, right? That was the foundational text for understanding how markets operate. And 1776 was also the year that this country was born, as a as an idea and rooted in freedom. So here's Adam Smith saying, "Freedom leads to prosperity." Okay, bottom line message of wealth of nations and societies that are more free will be more prosperous and here's a country being born that same year that is all about freedom right religious political economic freedom right the common man or essentially man actually was in charge of their own destiny by right of law they didn't have to be born into anything right so freedom was the sort of the uh, central idea the organizing principle of this society so that was all wonderful but there was another dimension that got lost. So 17 years prior, Adam Smith wrote the theory of moral sentiments. And that was about the human need to care, right? Which is even more powerful than our self-interest as any parent, you know, who has to choose between their child and themselves or, you know, you know, so caring is an extremely powerful human motivator. So I, the phrase I you know, use is that the capitalism had a mother and a father and they were both Adam Smith right? because he gave us both messages but the father message was the one that got listened to as often happens right in, in our lives too. We, we kind of take our mothers for granted and we want to live up to our fathers but on the other side so you have the US being born at the same time And when the founding fathers, Ben Franklin and and, and, uh, Thomas Jefferson and others were looking at setting up a system of government here. So they looked at all the models that existed in Europe and elsewhere, but they wanted to create something that went beyond because Europe still had these semi-monarchical kind of societies, not true democracies. So they they looked at the Iroquois Federation, which I don't know much about, but the Iroquois Federation was created five or six of the the tribes in the northeast when the Europeans started invading this continent and these tribes that used to be rivals and warriors you know battling each other they came together at the United front and they developed a pretty uh, powerful federation so that's what the United States ultimately was going to be a federal system right where states had rights and so forth that you cooperate together and you right so whole is greater than the sum of the parts so they had developed some pretty sophisticated ways whereby the whole was being led as well as the individual tribes, maintained certain identities and so forth. So there were elements of that that, uh, that showed up in the U.S. system that they borrowed. Now, but there's one big element which was that in the Iroquois Federation, there was a council of women. And I think there were a council of elder women, maybe even grandmothers. They're, they were the ones who actually selected the leader. So the leader of the F- Iroquois Federation was selected was always a man, but selected always by women. Right, And if that leader was not doing a good job, according to that group, then they could remove him and uh, put somebody else in there. So that kind of brought in that perspective, the feminine perspective, right? Even though those, those women didn't want to lead the thing, they still had tremendous input into it. That got left out, right? Any version of that. You wouldn't yeah. expect that exact thing, but some version of it. So even to the point where women did not have the right to vote for another 140 years, Right. And they were only founding fathers, there were no founding mothers. Right? There was no women signatories of the Declaration or any of these things. Now Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, would have been a a natural to be, you know, and she argued with him a lot, you know. Why are women not being recognized here? Said men left to their own devices become brutish, okay, without this this influence. But of course all of that was ignored. So what I'm trying to connect the dots here is that our democracy evolved with a surplus of masculine energy right and it's all rooted in freedom self determination rising from nothing to great heights overcoming great odds you know strength courage resilience all the admirable and wonderful masculine qualities those were the heroic qualities of this country but the the feminine side was completely left out the inclusive it became a highly individualistic society right and inclusiveness and the need to care for each other and just having the caring orientation even towards our employees and our customers etc you know it just became about self-interest and pursuing my dream and my passion and my vision in order to meet my self-interest and and that very quickly then devolves into selfishness and greed and exploitation so then if you look at how that evolved in the 19th century um, you know, over time as we started to have large corporations the other thing is the way we organized companies the only large organizations that existed were armies and so we borrowed from the armies right how do we how do we actually organize and lead large numbers of people so we had the hierarchical way of structuring the organization the command and control approach to leadership and then over time even the lexicon You know, strategy, tactics, operations, front lines, headquarters, staff, line. I mean, all of these are military terms. Execution, yeah. Yeah, execution. All of these are are military terms, right? We fire people, right? We aim for this, we shoot for that, we capture market share. I mean, that whole mindset came over. Business became another form of war. Mm -hmm. And in fact, to the point where the largest army that existed in the United States in the late 1800s was the Pinkerton Army which was actually a private army, which had more men and more guns than the US Army. Wow. Okay. And it existed purely to be hired by, by companies to yeah. achieve their goals, which often meant putting down restless workers or workers that were, you know, looking to strike or protest. Yeah. many stories of that at Carnegie Steel and other places, right, where the Pinkertons came out, opened fire. Because when companies started to just focus on, you know, became more about greed, exploitation, etc., you know, they started abusing their workers and squeezing them. And Carnegie went from five days to six days a week and 10 hours to 12 hours a day and cut pay all at the same time in their steel plants. And literally 10% of people were falling dead a year from exhaustion. And when they started protesting, and blockading the entrance to the steel plant, the Pinkerton army was called in, you know, to put them down and shot a bunch of them and kill them. Right? So that if you look at that energy, it gave rise to greed, exploitation, selfishness, which gave rise to unionism, ultimately militant unionism, the whole labor versus management, adversarial relationship, right? Which ultimately then led to the appeal of Marxism, socialism as an alternative, Form, and communism, right? So you would say that all of that happened in the world as a response to capitalism being practiced in a certain way, and that certain way I would say is excessive masculine energy, to the point of hypermasculine, right? So stepping back from all of that, so that that's what's kind of got us, and of course we know what kind of suffering was caused, therefore, by the rise of socialism, communism, and having the whole world then divided into these, you know, warring camps of alternative ideologies, one of which arose in response to the abuses of the other. So what was missing, as I said, was mother energy, right? caring, compassion, inclusiveness. And I would argue that there are two other energies today. So we have the system that was purely father energy and that even, you could almost say it was angry father energy, right? It's kind of like the, the God of the Old Testament. Right? Asking for human sacrifices and kill your baby to prove that you love me. (laughs) I mean there was that, the image of right? Yeah. God as an angry father. That's kind of the image of God. So that was kind of our societal operating system, if you will. But I think what we need is actually you need you need the father energy, right? Freedom, self determination, courage. you You need the mother energy, caring, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness, nurturing. I think you also need what I was calling God energy, you could also call it Father, uh, uh, elder energy, which is meaning and purpose. See, meaning and purpose is not something that we used to talk about in the old days, because most human beings, you know, it was hard enough to survive, right, get through life. There was very few people had the luxury to think about what is the meaning of my life, what's the purpose of my life. Today, of course, that is a burning question, right, 80-90% of people are motivated by purpose. So we need that purpose. Uh, To me, that's the God energy or the elder. And then we need joy, right? That's the child energy. You know, our workplaces have become almost like prisons. They can be like playgrounds, right? How can we create workplaces that are more like playgrounds and less like prisons? That's where actually wonderful things happen. You know, innovation and creativity and all those things happen when we are connected to our inner child. Right? So we need all four of those energies to be operational in business. And that's what Shakti leadership is about. I mean, it emphasizes more the mother, father, you know, the masculine feminine, but in there we also talk about your higher self and your child self, right? You need to be in touch with your higher self, which is that God side, you know, that purpose and meaning and your child self, the joy and the creativity. So the summary phrase that we actually came up after the book was published. It's not in the book, but uh, we need, as leaders to be the wise fools of tough love. Mm. you got wisdom and foolishness, toughness and love, all together. Right? It's not saying, let me pick one of those. You have to have all those energies, right? Wisdom, yeah. foolishness, which is childlike, toughness, love. As Martin Luther King said, we must be tough minded and tender hearted
0: at the same time, right? So how do we
1: create organizations that are built on that? Yeah. And that means we need leaders who have all of that.
0: Where will we ever find those people? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've met a few, okay. I mean, I would say in the world of business, the one who comes closest to me is Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines. I had the opportunity to have dinner with him once and then interview him uh, extensively in his office. And he was already retired, but I mean, he's a legendary leader and he is he's brilliant and he's hilarious. You know, great, great. He has that sort of jester uh, energy to him. Uh, tough as they come, you know, for the first 10, 15 years of their existence, they were basically fighting to survive because all the other airlines were trying to put them out of business. And he said, This is un American. This crony capitalism here. Other airlines get to keep competitors out because they've got all these sweetheart deals with Washington, right? So, tremendously strong and resilient. And,. You know, when they went public, the stock market symbol was love. It's a company built on love. LU, LUV is their stock market symbol, right? And we all, all also interviewed Colleen Barrett, who was the president, his legal secretary. He was a lawyer and ultimately she became president. He was the CEO. And she said, it was very simple. Herb was the dad and I was the mom, hmm. you know? I mean, he had the love in him too, but she yeah. manifested that. That was her, the culture of Southwest Airlines, which is their most unique asset as it is for most great conscious companies. is all Colleen Barrett, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would say Herb was like that. I would say the Dalai Lama is like that. He's a wise fool of tough love, you know? He's all of those things. Uh, It is rare, uh, but Gandhi was like that, right? Gandhi had a great playfulness to him, but tremendous toughness, great wisdom, right? And coming from a place of love.
0: Well, and one thing I I really like about the way you articulate that about being a wise full of tough love is that once we have a concept for something, we're much more likely to attain it or to realize it or even move in that direction, Yes. right? In these four dimensions of the masculine, feminine, the elder, and the child is is a really cool model, I think.
1: We also call it the holy family reunion. (laughs) It's the holy family within us, right? It's the mother, father, child, and elder.
0: Yeah, That's great.
1: uh, Yeah. Maybe that's our next book, you know, the wise fool of tough love.
0: Yeah. You know, one (laughs) thing I'm struck by is I hear you give me such a great um, history lesson on my own country and our country. I know, but um, I'm really amazed that this is, uh, you know, someone with an, an engineering background a marketing, a deep marketing background and very clearly like a sociology background, a history background, a political background. It's it's really fun just to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you, you know, and I, you know, I'm fascinated by American history. I think the founding fathers were incredible, and I've read, I think full-length biographies of most of them. But I also one of the things that I have come to uh, understand about my own journey is because I grew up in a very unique way. I am simultaneously an insider and an outsider.
0: What do you mean? What's unique about how you grew up?
1: Well, so I was in India for the first 7 years. Okay, of my life. And literally in a village for most of that time, a tiny little village without electricity or running water, in a very feudal system, extremely patriarchal. Uh, I would say largely misogynistic, in many ways abusive. You know, extreme uh, masculine energy type of environment. Because I come from a very feudal subculture. India has many castes and subcultures, etc. But this was a particularly it's kind of a war. You know, warrior that caste, and then within that a feudal kind of a a sect. So I grew up with uh, all of that around me and I saw that, right, but then I was seven when we left India. My father, meanwhile, had gone to Canada to get his PhD in uh, agriculture science and plant science. So at the age of seven, we moved and we moved to Barbados uh, and lived there for two years. And then the age of nine, we moved to California and I lived in a town called Salinas in Monterey County near San Francisco, 100 100 miles from San Francisco in the late 60s from the age of nine to 11. And these were momentous times in California. You know, this was the height of the Vietnam War, the peace movement, the psychedelic revolution, you know, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, both getting killed. And then Robert F. Kennedy, who had just won the California primary. We were watching live on TV. I remember that moment even today and he gets shot and killed you know all that hope and idealism and you know the riots in chicago and at the convention and man landing on the moon i mean all that happened in those two years you know wow and i was at an age of absorbing and seeing all of these extraordinary things and then we spent a year in canada after that and then we moved back to india when i was just about 12 right and so five years abroad and then back to india and now Having come from that background to look at India, in 1970, it was like going back in time a century. I mean, there was no television, there was no, you know, uh, I mean, the village was still where it was in the 1800s and all those cultural norms and morals were still there. And I could look at it now with such an outsider's perspective. Right, because I was like a little American kid at that point, you know. I mean, five years is a long time in the life of a twelve year old, right? Yeah. So you kind of imbibe all of that and then you come back and you see all of this stuff and I could see my cousins and uncles doing things which were horrifying to me. But that was part of their system and they you know, that's how they were brought up and you know, it was Will brutal. you give me an example of something oh my that God. you found? Well, once we you know so we had you know, servants were commonplace, right, in India. And they were almost a form of, I would say, not quite slavery, but on that spectrum, you know, indentured servitude. So we had this this family who's been working, you know, in because my grandfather lived in this big fort-like house, you know, with a joint family on the top of a hill, and he had these hereditary kind of servants whose families had been working for us for, I don't know how long. And so one of those kids, teenager, I think he must have been thirteen, fourteen. He was sent to work at our house in the city, because my father was a professor at the university there. So we lived about 35 miles from our village. And he, he was there to do you know, basic work around the house. And at one point he may have done something wrong. I forget what he did, but he did something that was, that, was, that was wrong. And so my cousin from the village came, you know, to teach him a lesson or to set him straight. right? And I'll never forget this. We had a tree out in our yard. He tied this guy with a rope okay to that tree and then he whipped him you know with oh. his belt or something i don't know what he used to whip him okay but you can just imagine that scene it's like from 12 years a slave or something right? yeah. and i'm i'm looking at this i'm 13 or so 14 years old right and looking at this kid my age being whipped by my cousin who's a sweet guy as far as i know right but this is what you do and this is what they did and to them it was the natural order but I could see with an outsider's eye I said oh my god I saw the misogyny I saw the way my grandfather yelled at the women in the house and they had no voice they sat on the ground with their heads covered could not say a word you know my grandfather never saw my mother's face because she always wow. had her face completely covered in front of him so if she if he saw her on the street he would know who she is wow <laughs> I mean it was that right so the extremes and I got to experience that in for in, a, in a, at an age when I could actually understand and kind of, you know, observe these things. So, so it gave me, as I said, simultaneously an outsider and an insider perspective. And I, I was from that system in a way. I mean, I was born into that, but I didn't become part of it. And I still was able to look at it and see. And also, you know, my own, uh, I was, I was brought up by my mother essentially as a single mother in that, in that household because my father was away at college and grad school and then PhD. So he was never around. Right. So I was basically brought up by my mother. And she's a very gentle she embodies all of the feminine virtues purely. Right. And she has no no agenda. She's innocent. She's loving. That's all. All she she's no, you know, she's all about serving and taking care of people, right? So I had that from my mother, and then I had this ability to look objectively at everything else. Right? So I became sensitized to the abuses of the masculine and the extreme patriarchal approach you know it was very vivid in me and i could see that right and so having had those experiences and having the the nature that i was born with and having my mother sort of um, you know even more deeply embed that in me that way of being i think eventually came around decades later in my work because i you know having then gone back to india then finished my high school and then You know, in those days, when I graduated high school, there were very few career choices in India. It was a socialist uh, democracy. Uh, The economy was dead. The government controlled everything. Uh, The income tax, the highest marginal income tax rate the year I graduated high school was 97.5%. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Above a certain level of income, you gave it all to the government, right? And everything was regulated and controlled. So there were only two cars that were produced in India at the time by two separate private companies, but these were like 20, 30 year old models. And there was a four year waiting list to get one, if you could afford it, which hardly anybody could. What you could afford was a scooter, two wheeler. like a, So there was two Italian brands, Vespa and Lambretta, which were now being made in India. There was a seven year waiting list to get one of those. Or you could buy it in the black market by paying oh. double, right? Uh, there was a 14 year waiting list to get a telephone. Because that was actually run by the government <laughs> is that that that's true 14 years to get a phone is that true yes yes that's wow. absolutely true you know um and there was only one person in 100 who had a phone as recently as 1995 in india wow. so in that economy you know if you were good in math and science you tried to get to engineering and there were only a few good engineering schools and if you were good in biology and science you tried to become a doctor and if you weren't good in either of those things and god help you you know you may be Maybe you get a government job something, <laughs> you know, get a bachelor of arts. But uh, so I ended up going to engineering without really having a passion for engineering, just because I happened to be good in math and science. And then I worked briefly as an engineer. And then I, I had learned that if you get an MBA, which was a relatively new thing in India at that time, uh, that, uh, your salary would double compared to an engineer. And you would work in an air conditioned office that's a big, big deal, deal. Okay, if you ever go to bombay you know, working in a factory so i was in a factory after my engineering uh, uh, then I, as soon as i got admission to business school i i left and uh, so two years later i'm almost finished with my business degree and then i see a group of my friends dressed up and going somewhere on a day we didn't have any classes and i said where are you guys going so we're going to the u.s information agency to get gmat applications that's a graduate management admission test. I said, "Why do you need that? We're already doing our MBA here." I said, "No, we want to apply for a PhD in business." I said, "I didn't know you can get a PhD in business." I said, "Give me five minutes. I'll come with you." Wow! I was still in my pajamas, right? And I did, and so because I, you know, I, having lived here as a kid, I, I would have loved to come back, but I don't know how, right? I don't know how. I didn't have the money to actually pay for a U.S. you know university education. Uh, but they said, you get a scholarship. So I said, okay, so I applied and uh, the irony is that out of that group of, I think seven or eight of us, I'm the only one who came here to get a PhD in business.
0: No way. Okay,
1: And I got a full scholarship to Columbia and Michigan and Cornell and North Carolina. and So I ended up coming to Columbia University to get a PhD in marketing. <laughs> and I call myself an accidental professor because that was not a plan. I had no plan actually. <laughs> Plan was get a job and survive, right? And so this became just a way to come to the U.S. All expenses paid, right? I mean, f- full scholarship. And so I did, and I said, okay, I guess I'm going to be a marketing professor now, you know. Wow. And, uh, now the 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 difficulty of that, if you look at who does a PhD in business, right? So if you look at the Americans who were in my PhD class, I think there were. And in, in that group at Columbia, I think there were two of us Indians and the rest of America. Now, those Americans who chose to do a PhD in business were highly motivated, okay, because they already had MBAs and they could get a high paying job and their salary would increase. But they really had to have a passion for research and teaching and you know, all of that. So we had a professor who at one of the uh, dinners at, uh, at somebody's faculty member's house early on to welcome us. He said, you know, you guys, PhD students are a unique species of people because you're willing to forego current income in order to forego future income. <laughs> 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 and, you know, that was true for the Americans, you know, but for me, it was just a way to come to the US. I didn't have that same drive. Right. And uh, so, but I, you know, finished my PhD and uh, started teaching at Boston University but you know I this was not something that uh, you know resonated with me at a deep level and as I learned more and more about business and the philosophy of business and the whole shareholder value maximization and you know it's a dog-eat-dog world and it's not personal it's business and it's apparent in only the paranoids. that whole story of business just offended me at a human level you know that it just seemed like it was just a very very toxic way of being so I never quite latched on to that story just based on my own personal nature you know and then i happen to be in marketing you know, if you if you come from a semi-socialist country like india to america this is a mecca of marketing right in those days america was five percent of the world's population i think something like 70 percent of world marketing spending was happening here right now it might be more like 40 percent with all the rise everywhere else but but the amount of marketing was just huge right i mean the sunday paper was this thick with ads television is inundated everything is sale 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 every sign window is filled with you know a lot of hype and hoopla and coupons your mailbox is stuffed every day oh my god i got mail oh actually it's not it's just junk (laughs) (laughs) you know it goes straight into the trash i mean after a while i was just like this is insanity you know this is what you know how can this possibly be worth it you know 1600 ads a day targeted at It actually varies from 1600 to 3000 depending on different studies but you know so much communication we're inundated with and constant sales and promotions and gimmicks and sweepstakes and it just seemed to me so excessive so my focus in my research became marketing ethics because i felt a lot of it was misleading and uh, efficiency and effectiveness you know we spend so much and what do we get for it so long story short i did 10 years of that kind of work and eventually um, I had made the case pretty strongly through my work that marketing was broken. We're spending so much money and we're getting terrible outcomes. Um, We estimated in 2004, 2005, we did a study on the image of marketing. 88% of Americans don't trust marketing, right? Even though marketing exists supposedly to create value for customers. And we found that year that the uh, collectively we were spending a trillion dollars on marketing a year. Okay. Now, in uh, 2005, that was the GDP of India. Okay. 1.1 1. 1 billion people were living on what we were spending here on ads, coupons and junk mail and things like that. Not selling. Selling is another trillion dollars. Yeah. Not all the salespeople. I said that's separate. This is just marketing. On a per capita basis, that was like something like $3,500 per person or $14,000 per family. And that's more than the 85% of the world's population lives on, what we are spending on ads, coupons and junk mail. So my question was very simple, what are we getting for this? For companies, for customers and for society? And the answer at each level was not much, in fact negative things are happening. Companies are getting very low returns, customers don't trust marketing but they are getting hooked on junk and bad things. And it's creating, you know, in young women, for example, body dysmorphia, eating disorders, depression because of the way women's bodies are used to sell stuff, right? Uh, And society is also, uh, in many ways, the culture is being negatively impacted. And we have the rise of obesity and diabetes and many other things that are coming from overconsumption of certain kinds of... So the net story was that fundamentally marketing has become a negative force in the world, you know. So we did a book called Does Marketing Need Reform. And then I started a book called The Shame of Marketing. Okay, think about that. Not only was I not proud of my profession, I had all this angst about it and even shame. Okay? I felt we had a lot to answer for. It is a phrase that had been coined by Peter Drucker some years before, but it really resonated with me, you know, and I was gonna do a whole book about how terrible marketing is you know
0: why didn't you finish that book
1: i didn't finish it fortunately
0: <laughs> yeah how how why did you why did you not finish it
1: well, i'll tell you why my mentor stepped in to save me from that project you know but i had this inner dialogue you know and i had this whole father fixation i didn't know him and then i you know i was you know trying to live up to my father he was this brilliant gold medalist uh, phd you know heroic figure but extremely different from me and I, you know, We had been alienated for a number of years in the middle because I got married to somebody he didn't approve of, etc. But still, deep down, there was this thing of being trying to be worthy of my father. And my inner dialogue was my father got a PhD in agriculture science and plant breeding. He's trying to cure world hunger, right? And I got a PhD in marketing, right? I'm trying to sell you some more potato chips. <laughs> that was my inner dialogue. He never said that, but that was my, you know, lack of self-respect and uh, some degree of shame about it. So I started that project, but then my mentor at uh, Emory University, Professor Jack Sheth, and I was going to write the book with him. I put a book proposal together with his name on it. He said, you know, Raj, in America, people want to hear about the solution, not the problem. That's simple, but profound, you know? And so I just turned it around. I said, most companies spend a ton of money on marketing and have lousy customer loyalty and trust. The more they spend, the worse things can get. What are the opposite examples? Companies that don't spend a lot, but have very high customer loyalty and trust. So I called it In Search of Marketing Excellence. I changed the name. And then we started to look for that. And soon we found these companies where that was true, their employees also loved them, and their communities embraced them, and their suppliers were loyal to them. Because these companies were actually looking to serve, not just use and exploit their customers. right? And they were doing that with their employees as well taking mm-hmm. care of them you know, and suppliers and so So they were stakeholder oriented. And then we found that these companies also had a reason for being. That was the higher purpose. Right? And they found the leaders were different and the cultures were rooted in trust and caring and fun and joy and love. So that became, that book became Firms of Endearment. That ultimately published under that name. And I remember the distinct moment, I think it was June 12th of 2005. I'm sitting in a writing retreat. And at that moment I'm writing some of the stories that we had uncovered about these companies and what they did for customers or employees or the families of employees or communities and so forth. And I found myself with tears in my eyes, trying to write, deeply moved by the humanity that can exist in a for-profit public company. You know, And I told my co-author, I said, David, I've never experienced a positive emotion connected to my work before. I've never been moved in a positive way, you know. Literally, I am moved to tears by this, and I know this is my body telling me something here. You know, I feel like my purpose had found me. Mm. Right? That this is something that deeply resonated with me. That there is a way of being in business that is not ruthless, that is not doggy dog, that's not only the paranoid survive, that is not impersonal and dehumanized. That is the opposite of all of those things. And these seem to be thriving companies. So that that was a moment where I had this sort of lightning flash that, wow, I think my life from this day forward is going to be dedicated to this. And then a few months later, we finished our research and we did the financial analysis, looking at how these companies perform for investors and our expectations were very modest. We even wrote down our hypothesis. They were paying their people much better. Like some cases double, like Costco pays double of Walmart and provides 96% of healthcare costs. Walmart provides nothing, right? So spending a lot more there. They are taking care of their customers, providing a good experience for customers and generally good value. They are not squeezing their suppliers. They're paying them well so suppliers are profitable and can be innovative. They're investing in their communities. They're investing in the environment. They were paying taxes at a higher rate. So we said maybe financial returns are okay, but not great because they're spending more in all these areas. And what we found was actually these companies outperformed the market by a 9 to 1 ratio like literally 1,025% over 10 years, 18 public companies that we had in our sample versus the S&P at 125, right? So nine to one outperformance despite doing all these things. And then soon we came to realize it's because of doing all those things that they're outperforming.
0: So Raj, why doesn't the rest of the business world catch on to that? I mean, if it's so evident in this research and it's repeatable, I mean, it's not you know, yes. Costco's not the only business. Bob Chapman's not the only business. Companies like the Container Store, that kind of thing. I mean, and and maybe there is this slow adoption that's happening, but why is this not just like, a,
1: well, you know, I mean, that's a why standard. our movement, that's why our movement exists to change. See, there's a deeply hardwired and ingrained mental model about business in people's minds, right? That the purpose of business is. To, I mean, I taught strategy for twenty years. I never used the word purpose once. Okay. Wow until 2007 or 8 because the purpose was given to us the purpose was to maximize profit now That's a given, out how, do you, right? how do you get there right so it's a given yeah. it's almost like gospel you don't question that yeah you know it's like go to the catholic church there's a list of things you don't question right? you know, so right. if you yeah. want to belong right so you don't question the shareholder value maximization you don't question agency theory you don't question five forces of competition you don't question all of that right Milton Friedman said only purpose of business is maximize profit stay within the must be true. Milton Friedman said it right, and where all these things and all these theories got built around that, and this becomes self-fulfilling, because when you teach somebody, you know, Michael Porter's five forces of competition, every your suppliers are competitors, your customers are competitors, your you know industry things the rivals are bitter, you know they're your enemies, and your th- that becomes your mental model of the world, and then yeah. it becomes self-fulfilling because you act that way. You never trust your suppliers because they could. Become your competitors, right? So you treat them with arm's length, you know, hostility and suspicion. And same thing with your customers. So, all of these things, and, and business schools are a big part of the problem because we have made that part of our core curriculum. Our core curriculum is rooted in those dogmas, right? And the business schools are very slow to change because you know, faculty are smart and they, they've got their education and training and their professors taught them this way. And it's a worldview and it's very threatening for people to let go of a worldview. It, it, it sort of takes away their own sense of self. Like, what am I all about if that's not true? Then what yeah. have I been doing all these years, you know? It's very hard for people to let go. And then the other thing is, you know, one of the other patterns in these companies is that they pay their frontline people very much better than average, but their executives are paid more modestly. The ratio is much lower, right? Costco is yeah. ridiculous. It's like five... T- At that time, Jim Senegal was paying himself $300,000 a year. Okay, and some of their cashiers were earning eighty thousand. Okay? I mean the ratio is very low. Whole Foods had a voluntary cap of nineteen to one. Okay, the highest pay cannot be more than nineteen times. And the public company average is four hundred to one.
0: Hmm. Right?
1: Walmart is twelve hundred to one. Right? CEO pay to median pay. So these are companies that at the top they pay more modestly because the leaders actually care about the purpose and care about the people and they're not just about money. Because yeah. if money is the only thing you care about, if you hire a leader, you know, only cares about money, this is all they're going to do, right? Yeah, yeah. If you, oh, I'm sorry. If you hire a leader based upon wanting to pay them, you know, at this much, then you'll get a leader who only cares about money. If money is the only reason why they're coming to you, right? But these companies have leaders who actually care about things beyond that. So the 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 reality is that most companies and most boards of directors today are populated by people who have a deeply ingrained mental model and its value system that is rooted in ego and power and money. These are people who primarily care about power and money. Okay. In that sense, they are less developed overall as a human being. You know, it's like, it's like going to a buffet and you're never satisfied. I mean, any amount of power and money will never be enough for somebody who only cares about power and money okay you could have 100 million dollars but your neighbor has 500 million you feel quite poor right you've got a 100 foot yacht but your neighbor has two 200 foot yards right there's no end to that game you know you're 76 on forbes's list but uh, you know all that there's no end to that right and therefore if people are motivated by those things and you come along and tell them all these things the only thing that can happen is some of them will say oh i see in chapter six that financial performance is much better, right? <laughs> Therefore, we want to do this. And my answer to them is, uh, if that's the only reason you want to do this, then it probably will not work. In fact, I can almost yeah. guarantee it won't work because these are not tactics. These are tenets, okay? Tenet is a pillar of fundamental belief mm-hmm. right? that there should be a higher purpose to each of our lives as well as every, each of our organization. that we need to ensure that we are actually taking care of all of our stakeholders, That uh, Employees and their children and their families are able to lead a good life, etc. Those are not tactics. You don't say that you know. I mean, I know that happier employees are more productive. Therefore, I want happier employees. Okay. Well, guess what? Employees will see through that. The only yeah. reason you care about my happiness is so that I can do more for you, right? It's like my friend Fred Kaufman in his book has a has a nice analogy for this. It's like if uh, let's say you're proposing marriage to somebody, right? And you get down on your knees and say, "Will you marry me?" And the woman asks, why do you want to marry me? And you say, well, I just read that married men live six years longer and they earn 30% more over their lifespan. <laughs> That's why I want to marry, right? You know, you're know, you not going to get married, right? So again, we do that with in business all the time, right? We do these things purely from a mercenary yeah. standpoint. People see through that. Right? Yeah. There has to be a purity. You have to do the right things for the right reasons.
0: Yeah, pe- people feel that.
1: So there's a lack of, um, you know, slowly it's changing, but the people who have, see, our system is designed to elevate people into positions of leadership based on their ability to deliver numbers, okay? especially public companies and even other businesses, right? If you deliver the numbers year after year, you're going to get promoted, but studies are now showing, there's one in Australia that looked at the psychological profiles of people who climb the corporate ladder most rapidly. And they found that there's a much higher percentage of those people who had a sociopathic mindset. It's about 20%, okay, qualified as sociopaths because they're only about their own objective. They don't care what is the human cost, how many people you have to trample over to get there. And that's what we reward, right? Yeah. Even in the US, there was a study that found, I think the incidence of sociopaths in, in the population at large is 1%. It's 20% in high-security prisons, and it's about that in in executive ranks.
0: Okay. To, so today, is that ranks. is that worldwide in the United States? That was what, a, you know, the research... So one is
1: an Australian study, which was about the people who rise most rapidly, and the other one was a U.S. study. Mm. Okay, that that estimated roughly 20%, right? So that's what we've created in the world of yeah. business, right? It's the ruthless achievers who get promoted but at the, what cost and the way in which they achieve those results is actually planting the seeds for future disaster, right? Because you're trampling people, you become a terrible place to work, eventually nobody will wanna work there, nobody, will, you know, that all comes back, yeah? yeah, which is why in the long term these conscious companies do so well, because, you know, all of that gets around. You know, Yeah, people it, all, it all comes there. back eventually. It all comes back. This is karma, you could call it karma capitalism too. Yeah, conscious capitalism.
0: Well, well, Raj, I've had so much fun talking to you and learning from you in this conversation that I haven't reserved as much time as I would have liked to talk about writing, and to ask a few of the other questions. But in respect for your time, um, I do want to ask you just a few more questions, and and then wrap up. And I do want to make a point to ask a bit about your writing, because I understand you've written more than five hundred articles, and and pieces i don't
1: know if it's 500 it's probably more like 100 academic articles and i think about 11 or 12 books probably
0: what's your process for taking a book from an idea to completion
1: you know uh it it varies depending on the um, the kind of book that it is you know uh there are some books where you need to do a lot of research and formulate your ideas and so forth as you go right you don't have it all in your head and I think my first book, The Rule of Three was kind of like that. Uh, some of the earlier stuff that I did was also like that. Even recently I did a book that was more like that. But then there are other books. Uh, Firms of Endearment actually was a joy to write, but there was a lot of research that needed to be done, right? We started with we we're trying to identify those kinds of companies that everybody loves. We started with the nomination process of 500. We did quickly screened out companies based on which ones did not meet all the criteria. Then we had 60 that we did detailed case studies on, and then we selected 28 of them and then did more in-depth work on those. Uh, so that took a lot of time and, and we didn't know what we were gonna find, right? So it was a discovery process in the research itself. And, and so that was, it was, as I said, a joy to do it because of what we were discovering you know, and what we were learning along the way. Uh, and my co-author and I had divided up the chapters pretty much and we, we, I, I got most of the research, I got my MBA students involved in doing some of the research. So that was, a, it, it would move pretty quickly once we, once we figured out what the story was going to be. But as a sharp uh, a contrast to that was when we wrote Conscious Capitalism. Um, you know, when we wrote Conscious Capitalism, John Mackey and I had a pretty clear idea in our mind of what we wanted to write. We kind of knew. What we wanted to say in the whole book, you know? and the method, the process that I use for that is something I've done a lot for more casual writing, which is I create a mind map. I don't know if you're familiar with mind mapping, but it's a way of getting all your like ideas. Tony Buzan. Yes, originally by Tony Buzan, and I happen to be very good friends, and my co-author on my next book is Michael Gelb, who's probably the world's second expert on mind mapping after Tony Buzan. Right, and he's that's a great co-author it. to have. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's got lots of. He's I think this will be his sixteenth book. Uh, wow. He's really a wonderful student of genius and creativity and innovation and all that. So it's a joy, but he, I had learned mind mapping directly from him. And so then I would use it. I use it now for every piece of writing that I ever do or any talk that I do, et cetera, I just create a mind map, which is on one page, you get the central idea and all the branches and, you know, and this flows in a certain way and you see the links as well. So what I do now for that kind of a project for uh, conscious capitalism, with John Mackey and I simply created a whole bunch of mind maps we literally spend half a day on each mind map of each chapter, right? Three, four hours of brainstorming and getting all of our ideas and thoughts out and then organizing that into a single page with branches and words and all
0: of that. And then- How did you decide on that project, how many chapters for the Conscious Capitalist book?
1: I think we just started with an outline as part of our book proposal, and we just said, you know, what are the things we need to say. We knew that we had four pillars of conscious capitalism, so each of those would be a section. We knew that under stakeholders, there are at least six stakeholders. We needed a chapter for each of those. Right? So that's already 10 or 11 right there. But then some of those like purpose, we need more than one chapter. cetera. we want to tell the history of capitalism as well, because very few people actually understand that, including most business professors. I had no idea as a business professor, what the history of capitalism was. Uh, we knew we wanted going to talk about, you know, some of the other personal development kinds of things. So we knew we needed about 15 chapters, you know, so we started the outline and we, we created first an outline with a paragraph on each chapter that was part of our book proposal. But then eventually we refined that and we created mind maps on each of those chapters, got everything that we knew into those mind maps just as a bullet or as a, as a branch. And then we simply sat down and dictated. right? We literally put on the headset like we're doing now, and we are dragon naturally speaking software. Uh, and we were able to dictate our thoughts about each chapter, we took turns, we sat together, right, with a cup of tea and we just had our mind maps and we just talked. Right, and wow. whoever was leading had the headset and we recorded everything at the same time. And, and that became a way to actually get all of our thoughts into a document very quickly. I mean, literally like in the morning, we would do you know, a couple of those.
0: <laughs> yeah, how long did that process take you?
1: Oh, we, we went from zero to 120,000 words in less than three months. Wow. And the publisher only wanted 60,000. you know. So then the challenge was, <laughs> we eventually got it down to 96,000. We ended up with a longer book than we intended. But uh, it was, I wouldn't say effortless, but it was just, it, was, it flowed so easily. You know, because again, we knew what we wanted to say. You know, John had 35 years of running Whole Foods to draw upon. And he's an avid reader and, you know, he's integrated. Plus I had done the firms of endearment work and we had been running, had, the Conscious Capitalism Movement was five years old already by that time, you know, four years when we started. So that just flowed. And then from that point, it's just a matter of editing and polishing. And, you know, that was version 0.9. We went through three, four iterations on each chapter, but, but it just flowed beautifully.
0: How did you find your editor for that project and how did you work with your editor?
1: In that case, the editor was at Harvard Business School Publishing, Melinda Marino. So when we had sent out the book proposal, you know, she was the one who responded to us and she was our editor. Uh, She didn't have to do a lot. You know, we we did send out the book for reviews with other people whose inputs we valued and so we got some good inputs. And you know, the whole process was was quick. Three months for the initial draft, another six months for editing and iterating and then it was done. Uh, So I find that that works. Something like that worked for everybody matters as well because there it was a matter of getting Bob Chapman's story and then interviewing all the other people that were involved in that story, in, in that journey over the years. And then, uh, you know, just telling telling a story. I mean, for that I use the model of Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I don't know if you've read Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. But it's one of the most impactful book I've ever read. And that actually is in two parts. You know? So but the first part is uh, scenes from a concentration camp, his experience at Auschwitz, right? So that's the story. And the second part is logotherapy in a nutshell, which is his whole philosophy of, of how do you find meaning and purpose. So that's kind of became the structure for Everybody Matters. The first part was Bob Chapman's journey as a leader, right, and telling that story and how he, these insights and aha moments and awakenings came to him and you know how that ultimately grew. And then all of that evolved into a way of thinking and leading truly human leadership. So the second part was really about that. And how do you do it? How do you implement hmm. those things? You know, So uh, I think every book in that sense is unique. This healing book is uh, is a lot about telling stories. Uh, so we've interviewed, I think we have about 20 different stories in the book right now. Some are really big stories in depth, uh, seven or eight of them. And I would say eight or 10 of them are smaller stories, uh, but it's really been learning it's sort of an inductive process You know, in what ways are companies actually doing this? How are they healing? Without maybe using the language, but in how are these companies healing their communities? How are these companies healing their customers? How are these companies healing their employees and the children of those employees? How are these companies addressing what we talked about earlier, which is 70 million Americans who have a criminal record of some kind, right? How are they, I call it confronting social sadness. You know, there's things in our society that have been, you know, sort of blots. You know, um, actually, that's a phrase that's used by Monica Wardline, I think, at University of Mich- uh, Stanford. She called social sadness. You know, so that's like the the you know people who are left out, you know, uh, people who have been, you know, uh, caught up in the criminal justice system, which our system is very very harsh and uh, unforgiving, and many people pay an enormous price for what would be a minor thing or maybe not even a crime, you know, in many countries yeah. around the world, you know, very, very harsh yeah. system. And so many people are caught up in it. And once they are caught up, you know, they never can recover from it. And as the rabbi said, uh, who started the Grayston Bakery, he said, I want to give people a first chance. There are many people who never even get a first chance in our country, because they're born in these terrible surroundings, ghettos, you know, terrible education, no father figures, violence and crime, no future, no hope. They get caught up. Yeah, That's it, they're trapped, right? So so we're learning a lot. This is more inductive. This is a little more like firms of endearment in that sense. It's more inductive and learning as we go, but again, joyful. Everything I do is just, uh, it's just, you write with a smile on your face, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it comes through. Tell me about your schedule when you, how do you set a production schedule and how do you adhere to it when it comes time to actually developing this content, getting it down and getting it refined?
1: Uh, well, typically publishers will, will, will put a deadline on a contract, right? And uh, that helps, that helps, <laughs> uh, although, um, like in this case, our deadline was October, either October 1st or October 31st for this healing book. But earlier this year, I started to realize that if I'm going to write a book about healing, I need to actually experience healing in a deep way for myself and also understand it in a deeper way, you know, from from books and, from, and from, uh, from teachers. So I just felt that I needed to do uh, certain uh, types of things in order to get there. And I wasn't feeling ready. You know, this book, I think all books are, but this book is kind of a sacred undertaking. Because we are, we're taking on what I consider a very large and meaningful subject. There's a lot of suffering. And if you want to write about healing in a meaningful way, we have to do justice to the idea or to the premise of the book, right? No. So we can't just, I mean, it's, you know, we can put out a quickie book very easily, you know, you do a bunch of interviews, downstairs. you know, it's possible to do a shallow and quick book. I didn't want that to be the case here. So I felt like I just needed more depth myself. I just felt I, I wasn't healed. I hadn't figured out, you know, my past. I didn't really know myself fully. I hadn't come to love myself i wasn't fully manifesting my essential qualities you know so i needed to heal and as part of that you know i've been on multiple i went on a silent retreat i went to the himalayas in the in june with a group of 10 people and that was a different kind of spiritual experience rooted in buddhist wisdom i went on a retreat in the amazon rainforest uh, with the pachamama alliance and that was about learning how we're part of nature and how we've kind of Become disconnected from our own spirit. Um, I've started working with a coach. You know, I've done some other kinds of journeys as well, and you know, I've done Landmark Forum and many other courses and read books and so forth. The Untethered Soul, for example, a beautiful book that I just finished. So it's been a lot of deep exploration. So what I said to my co-author and to the editor is that you know we need to delay this book by a few months because mm. uh, you know there's, it's an artificial deadline to say October. So we're delayed it to February. And I was able to take the summer and do a lot of these things. And I feel now just far more equipped to be able to do this book. I think, you know, the key thing about books and my editors, uh, the editor that I had on, on Everybody Matters was was a wonderful experience. And as Michael and I were talking about writing a book together for many years, because we've been friends for 20 plus years. And we said, it would be fun to do something together. So we were just brainstorming projects and ideas and putting together little proposals and sending them out. And we sent three or four of those (laughs) out as ideas um, to this editor that I had enjoyed working with. And finally after that, he kept saying no to all of them. And finally he said, you know, Raj, the time to write a book is not when you decide it's time to write a book. You write a book when there's an idea that is so important that is just you have to write the book. Okay. Mm. That is just burning. It's something that needs to be born. Okay. So don't have this artificial thing, it's been two years since I published something, I better write a book. Right? <laughs> you know? So until you come up with that, because no great book ever got written based on saying I need to write a book. Yeah. Just because it's time. Books got written because they had to be written. Right mm-hmm. It was burning. I mean, Victor Frankel wrote Man Search for Meaning in three weeks, okay? Wow, because it was burning, you know, it had to come yeah. out and it was ready to come yeah. out. and I think so that's ultimately what then guided us, and it's not until I came on this this idea of this healing book that we felt truly ignited from within, right, as opposed to driven from the outside factor. Yeah. It was intrinsically motivated now, not extrinsically motivated. So we just feel this book needs to happen and we need to do it justice. And for that, we need to take the time it takes.
0: That's great. So if your deadline is February, what's your publication date?
1: Hopefully by September, October of next year, a year from now, you know, we have our annual CEO summit, uh, Conscious Capitalism CEO summit in October every year. That's always a good deadline to shoot for. If we can have the book launched at that conference, it would be great.
0: Oh, that's great. What advice do you give someone who's standing on the threshold of starting their own book, you know, starting down that path, or maybe it's a TED Talk for them or a podcast, some creative work? What, what do you say, or maybe they're in the middle of it and they're kind of feeling stuck or lost. What advice do you give to that person?
1: I think uh, you have to go back to why. Why are, why are you doing this? Why does this need to be done? What would be missing in the world if if this did not exist, you know? Because it can't just be about your ego or about whatever you know it's, or checking a box. Like in academia, you know people just write constantly meaning what I consider meaningless articles, you know, which are not really addressing any significant questions, but they are going into great depth and with huge, analytical rigour on a, on, a, on a narrow subject that ultimately doesn't matter really. So it has to matter, right? What does this yeah. matter, not just to me, but to others, right? This needs to matter to others. So what am I trying to bring into being here that's going to matter? So being more driven by that, as opposed to whatever it's going to do for you, I think is, is very important. And then the other thing I think which you know, my parallel journey of working on this book and going on all these healing uh, experiences has been kind of developing a personal, I'm calling it the path. And I may do a book on that after I get done with the healing, but it's a path to inner peace and healing for yourself. You know, And I think that's ultimately also about aligning with your life's work. So everything that you do should in some way be part of your life's work, your, your contribution. And it's interesting, I've come in contact with a lot of shamans lately, right? In, in the Amazon and elsewhere. Shamans are about healing. And one of my colleagues at, uh, at Boston College wrote a book. I think I have it here somewhere. Um, it's called Intellectual Shamans, right? And she's identified a group of academics. She happened to put me in that book as well. 28 of academics who are actually non-traditional. They're doing these things that are trying to bring healing to the world and they're trying to change the world of business. Uh, and they're not just playing the academic game of publishing these many articles in these journals and getting cited by so-and-so and you know, that, that whole thing, that doesn't motivate me or any of these other people in this book. So there has to be that, you know, how are we yeah. going to bring joy and, and reduce suffering or healing to the world, right? And as I said, for that to be truly a manifestation of you, you need to understand, know yourself, Right, and then you need to learn to love yourself. A lot of people think they know themselves, and then they hate themselves, right? Because you know they only see the flaws, or they only interpret their own strengths as weaknesses, which I did too for decades. You know, and my father told me you need to be rough and tough, and I was trusting and you know and peaceful, right? And he said, no, 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 that's you're going to get eaten alive. You cannot be idealistic. And I was very idealistic. You know, you don't trust anybody. I trusted everybody. you know all of that for many years I was in a state of rejecting everything that was unique about me because that was the message I was getting from him and from others now he was doing it I'm sure from a good motivation he didn't want to see me squashed you know (laughs) in the world but uh, but I think coming to that place of knowing yourself your true essence and then learning to love yourself and and uh and acknowledge those as gifts right yeah and then and then express and then being yourself right not denying yourself but being yourself and then ultimately projecting that into the world expressing yourself right Mm -hmm. manifesting those qualities i'm looking for a word the opposite of weaponizing yeah a lot of people weaponize they're brilliant they weaponize their intelligence you know to hurt other people but they have a great sense of humor they use it with a biting wit you know which can destroy somebody but I'm talking about the opposite of that use it to serve you know use it to elevate you know
0: that makes me think a little bit about about Buckminster Fuller along those same lines where he talked about we're so adept at creating weaponry right where he was interested to create livingry
1: livingry ah
0: yeah Yeah.
1: yeah weaponry versus livingry that is interesting
0: yeah Okay, Raj. So I know we're at about time. Um, I have just a few rapid questions. If you're good to just shift gears and we'll and we'll get a few a few things. So, okay. So these questions, by the way, I've written them with the hope that you can answer them concisely, maybe even with a single word <laughs> in some cases. So the first one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. The question is. Life is like a blank.
1: It's like a jigsaw puzzle.
0: I love it. It's one. Okay, number two. What is something at which you wish you were better? Dancing. Mm. Number three. If you're required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
1: Love yourself and others.
0: Number four. What book, other than your own, have you gifted or suggested most often?
1: Man's search for meaning. This was easy. I bought 300 copies
0: when I I first read it. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Number five, you travel a lot. What's one travel hack? You know, something you do or maybe something you own that makes your travel less painful and or more enjoyable?
1: Hmm i don't know that i've discovered that yet i'd be curious to see what other people say um yeah i don't uh, i don't have a good one there you know i do concentrate my flying with one airline so i can i can get some you know more comfortable travel out of that you know and get upgraded and so forth but
0: ah uh, Any way you pack, any possession you make sure to always take, any routines you observe, anything like that? I'm always looking for the perfect suitcase,
1: you know. I'm always on, you know, always on the lookout
0: for what is, what's the right suitcase. Uh, Okay, what's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
1: I I started exercising more regularly and also practicing, uh, having a presence practice in my life. Those two things have helped. Uh, What did I stop? I used to smoke many, many years ago. I mean, I did
0: fortunately stop in my 20s. Might be why you're still here. (laughs) Yep. Um, What's one thing you wish every American knew?
1: That America is a wonderful country, but it is not infallible. That it's okay to acknowledge weaknesses, and to apologize for wrongs that may have been done Mm -hmm. america is not infallible it's not perfect still it's a wonderful country but we have some blind spots america being american means never having to say you're sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it seems is there a piece of advice like one saying perhaps that your parents gave you that has stayed with you
1: I would have to say it comes from my mother because you know my father's messages were all in a a direction that ultimately you know did not serve me but I've realized that my work in the last uh, 10-15 years has really been honoring my mother and uh, it's bringing that mother energy to the world and if I think about things that she says I think one of the phrases she says it in Hindi of course but it translates to don't bring pain to somebody else's heart. Or don't be the cause of pain in somebody else's heart.
0: How is that said in Hindi?
1: Dil, nahi dukhate. dil is heart. Nahi is no, dukate means bring pain. You know. So don't bring pain to anybody's heart, that kind of thing.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. Okay, um, last one of these rapid kind of questions, which is, what are people surprised to learn about you?
1: That I like to sing. Uh, I don't know if they're surprised, but it's <laughs> something more <laughs> people don't know. Uh, but that I come from a very warrior-like background. You know, those are, those are my roots. People get surprised when they hear that because I don't think I project that. <laughs>
0: The warrior shaman, I I can see it. Okay. I can see it. Yeah the,
1: yeah, the peaceful warrior, that that whole that whole concept. I think, yeah, that's that's true. I think, yeah. To me, it's important to remember, to acknowledge, and value the masculine while celebrating the feminine, because there are many beautiful yeah. masculine. And and being a warrior is necessary at times, right? We cannot all because you know, that's how we protect from evil.
0: Yeah. Okay, Raj, um, as a way of expressing my gratitude to you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and your experience, one small token of my appreciation is I've gone on kiva.org. I have a kiva lending team that I host. And today, in your honor, I made a $100 loan to a woman named Lily, who's in India in the Impal East District in Manipur. She has a weaving business. And she will use this money to expand her weaving business by buying thread and materials. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to, to do you. that and let you know. Thank you. And my pleasure. If if people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what should they do?
1: Uh, my website is rajsisodia.com. And there there's a form they can fill out if they want to get in touch with me. Uh, or they can find me quite easily at babson.edu. But rajsisodia.com is a good a resource that has a lot of the uh, uh, videos and the descriptions of the books and some of the shorter articles, etc that I've written, including a lot of personal writing actually. There's a tab there called My Writings or Personal Writings. So those are some humorous essays and some autobiograph
0: autobiographical pieces that I've done over the years. Awesome. And people can also learn more at consciouscapitalism.org.
1: Yes. About right.
0: And maybe yes. find a chapter near them or yes. participate in your annual event.
1: Yes. So we have 37 chapters in the U.S. and uh, 17 or 18 other countries. And we have two uh, big annual conferences that we do. One for CEOs in October and the other one is open to anybody in uh, April, which will be in Beautiful. Phoenix next year.
0: Phoenix in April sounds pretty okay. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Love to see you there too, Brian. Yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna go up after this and, and look at my calendar and get this email about travel for you. Some of the fun things I'll just share right now, real quick for the listeners. David G always only packs carry-on, no matter how long he's gone for, no matter if it's international. Lynn Twist always has a shrine that she sets up in her hotel room, uh, where she takes with her. And then I love what Greg McEwen says. He has a packing checklist that he uses not only to pack himself, but that he uses before he comes home yeah. to make sure he took everything from his hotel room. Right. Right. Okay. I was like, that's so smart.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again for for being a part of this. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to this conversation with me and Raj Sisodia. I hope that you will take something that you've learned from this podcast this day and apply it to improve the quality of your life, the life of someone you love, the life of someone you don't even know. I hope that you continue to make a difference on this planet, specifically in ways that elevate the quality of consciousness, leadership, and life on earth. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care.